Hey friends, welcome to Worry Less, Wag More. This is the Behavior Bets Podcast. I'm your host, Ferdy Yao. Join me to dive into the thrills and challenges of treating pet behavior issues. I'll shine a light on science-based training that's effective and brings us closer to understanding the animals we share our lives with. Hello, 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 and here we are, my friends. This is episode number 50. It is my pleasure to introduce you to one of the legends of the animal training industry, Suzanne Clothier. She is the author of Bones Would Rain From The Sky, Deepening Our Relationship With Dogs, and the inventor of Treat Retreat. I bet many of you didn't know that. She was teaching relationship-centered training before most trainers even knew what it was. There are many little nuggets of knowledge that she dropped during our conversation, including a story of how she and her now husband were shot at while walking in the park on a date. Her reaction to, to almost being shot is the essence of Suzanne. Practical, resilient, and bold. So perk up your ears and let's get into this. Hello, Suzanne. How are you today? I am absolutely fabulous. And thank you so much, Ferdy. Good to see you and good to be invited to be a part of this. Hey, thank you. Thank you for your time. I've been a huge admirer uh, in the past. And uh, I just think, you know, you, whenever I am working with uh, new trainers, um, you're, you are one of the few uh, people that I tell everyone to make sure that they follow, that make sure that they yeah. watch you and they learn from you. Um, there's so much that you've done. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but one of the things I really love is how how you make training just, it makes sense. It just makes sense. <laughs> it's easy for people to understand. Um, so that's it's just one of the great qualities that you have. Um, but you've had a, a career that's spanning uh, about five decades now. Um, <gasps> I so am beginning to feel old, I tell you. <laughs> so it's you're like... seeing, I'm sure you've seen a lot that's gone on and oh, a lot yeah. of changes in your lifetime, in your um, in your career. Uh, so I, I actually just want to ask you, uh, what what is uh, what was your first job working with Anne was professionally? The first time I got paid, I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was I was eight, and the neighbor said, "I'll get you know, will, will you walk my dog and brush my dog?" And I was like, "Oh, that that is an awesome task." And she goes, "I'll give you a quarter." Well, I was like, "Well, that's a crazy concept. I would have done it for free, but huh, you can get paid <laughs> to do this." Not that money has ever been a driving factor, and anyone who knows me or has seen my cars in my house knows that's true. But, um, yeah, it was just like the only thing I ever wanted to do was animals, mm -hmm. like ever. I did spend two days as a temporary secretary. I lasted two days. I finished <laughs> I one assignment. I was like, yeah, okay, now nah, this is – I'm going back to being a dog trainer. Okay. It was, it was horrible. Just absolutely horrible. Wow, I can't even imagine. Eight years old, and and just – I would just it probably just – um. I would just probably like, you know, flip out if somebody told me that, oh, I have my neighbor's eight-year-old walking the dog. I'd be like, are you nuts? Like, No, wow. but the, the <laughs> weird part is they, they would be like, yes, but have you seen that kid? Like my dog is so good with her, right? So that's, yeah. by the time I was 14, people in the neighborhood was like, go find that kid. You know, uh -huh. I, I, I was a dog sitter. I was a pet sitter. I was a pet walker. When I was 14, I somehow, I have no idea how in a little tiny suburban house, convinced my non-dog-owning family, though we like them, to let me run a boarding kennel in the basement. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I will take care of it. And I did. I only took like, you know, one or two clients at a time. But yeah, it was just, it was crazy. But by the time I was 14, they're like, go get that kid. Because, wow. yeah, I had trained the neighbor's collie. I had... No one told me what you couldn't do, and I was a frustrated non-horse owner, so we had been given this electric car whose battery had died, and my dad, being cheap, was like, I'm not paying for you guys. You want to push yourselves around in it? And that got old very fast, going down the driveway a few times. I was like, I'm going to use it. I'm going to make this a cart. I don't have a horse, and I don't have a carriage, but I have a collie, and I have a 
old electric car. So <laughs> in in art class, we had macrame. That was the thing back in the 70s, right? And you can make anything you want. I was like, aha, well, then I'll be making a harness. Um, and freaked out the art teacher because she first I made a horse halter. But when she uh -huh. asked, what are you making? I said, a halter. That's when halter tops were really popular for girls. Oh, she's, <laughs> she's absolutely like she's not sure how to tell this kid like, oh, honey, that is not going to be socially acceptable unless you're a stripper or something. Um, <laughs> so I, I macramade a, a driving harness and I taught that colleague to drive and I drove him all over freaking town. Wow. And long before agility, he did all the full size playground equipment. Nobody told me he couldn't. So I just thought, all right, let's do that. And I'd set up little courses with lawn, lawn furniture and crap out of my mother's you know, she said it would come home and look like an Olympic show ring on the front lawn. I was like, well, you won't get me a pony, so <laughs> well, I will that fix sounds it. Like a, <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was. It was a hoot. It was a hoot. Got a lot of free ice cream, too, because every week I'd teach him <laughs> some new tricks, and the ice cream man was so delighted. He's like, now what did he learn? Oh, I like this week he learned to read. I had just faded a cue for, you know, for raising your paw, but I didn't know what all that stuff was. I was just, just like did it. following my instincts. So then when I grew older and I could learn all the jargon, I was like, oh, I'm going to learn how to fade the cue. This will be so cool. And I was like, well, dang it. I was doing that when I was 13. Like, come on. I just <laughs> now I know what it is. But yeah. <laughs> OK, cool. That's what it's called when you do that. So, yeah, yes. just an obsessed child. And probably they'd medicate me in these days. Like all <laughs> she wants to do is think, breathe, eat, draw, you know, read about, talk about animals 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 but yeah and when you're old it gets you where you are famous and uh. <laughs> what kind of animals have you worked with other than dogs horses actually are my first love but i could not um afford to become a horse trainer i had no one backing me so uh -huh. my intention was to be a horse trainer and have dogs as a hobby so at this point there's some wildlife along the way i've had some some fun with wildlife but living with animals um Mice, rats, hamsters, I'm just sizing up, box turtles, tortoises, different kinds of birds. Right now we have a macaw, a cockatoo, and an Amazon, seven German shepherds, um, many different kinds of dogs, horses, ponies, donkeys, pigs. We have a herd of highland cattle, turkeys, chickens, quail. Uh, I've had snakes. Trying to think what else we've had. Lots of baby birds I raised and forgot to tell people they were in the bathroom. So some poor guests would <laughs> sit down to pee and nice then surprise. like the, Yeah, the fledgling robin would land on the sink next to them and open his giant mouth and scream, Feed me, I'm gonna die. Um yeah, so there was always that part. Rabbits. Yeah, all kinds of things. It just wow. there's not many things I wouldn't keep. Now in my old age, I'm like gonna get land snails and, and jumping spiders. My husband's okay. like, thank God he's cool about all this, but I'm <laughs> yes, like, when right. I'm when I'm too feeble, the spider will have to come to me and I could probably catch a snail no matter what speed he's going at. So we're good. <laughs> okay. So one, like I said before, uh, one of the reasons why uh, I and many others in that profession my your work is, is your ability to to interpret behavior and training concepts in a way that's easy to understand and, and appeals to really the average pet owner, so it really helps them kind of figure out what to do. Uh, so uh, can you tell me a couple of common mistakes or misconceptions that non-professionals and professionals make? I think, I think the number one thing that we all get wrong, and I think we get this wrong in all of our relationships, whatever the species, you know, we, we can get this as wrong with our husband or our partners or our parents or our spouses, children, whatever, neighbors, is that we don't check to see that the home movie playing in our head that we think we're reading the subtitles, right, um, is actually what's playing in that other being's head. It's like, so all communication is about guessing. You know, mm -hmm. someone once someone once said to me, like, well, you, you shouldn't be speaking dog. You know, I'm like, why not? If I speak with someone who speaks a different language, I'm, I'm going to guess that what I'm saying is what I mean and what they understand. So I think, I think it's okay to, to guess that, you know, you're enjoying this interview, for example, and I can see your face, but I don't know you well. So for all I know, you know, your mom might say, oh, that, no, that's his, I hate this, please God, no more broccoli face. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I'm guessing 
And so I'll, I'll act as if what I've interpreted is true, but then I have to listen for what the other actually says and tells me. So when we, we make assumptions, you're stubborn, you're stupid, you're, you're disinterested, and you've got dogs who are saying, I'm actually worried to come close to you because you're quite angry right now. So the smart thing in dog is to sit here and, and look to the side and not look at you because apparently <laughs> I'm not sure what's got you upset, but I don't want to be part of it. Um, we're like, oh, he's stubborn or he's blowing you off or he's trying to get something, you know, get away with it. I used to ask my students, get away with what? Running the world, you know, extinguishing a species, blowing up the solar system. And they're like, well, don't be silly. I'm like, well, no, I really want to know what is he getting away with? You have to, you have to fill in the blank. And they would say, well, he's confused. I'm like, well, we can't let him get away with being confused. Let's fix that. Let's clarify it. Um, so that concept of we can't just project onto someone else what we want. And it uh, that means we have to move our ego out of the way. And that's, that's hard when uh, the other is nonverbal. Yes. And we've either swallowed a lot of myths or we come prepared with some explanation. And that could be a big dog brought to me a couple of years ago. They were going to either euthanize him or put him on a lot of medication because he was um, potentially aggressive. And he got out of the car and I could see that physically this was one hurting dog. This dog was structurally a train wreck. And on top of that, he was he was hurting and they wanted him to sit. So they had a head halter and they forced him into a sit. And he was a nice dog, so he said, I'll try, but it hurt too much. He couldn't sustain it, so he stood up. And they cranked him back down. They gave him treats and held him in the sit. And after, I don't know, two, three minutes, he then started coming up on him, grabbing their arm. And he's, mm. I can see his face. He's just saying, I can't do that. Like, yeah. why do you keep forcing me to do that? Yeah. And no one had looked at that. They're like, oh, he's this breed mix, you know, so you know what that means. When people say that in seminars, I'm like, oh, she's got glasses. You know what that means, right? Um, it, it may or may not mean something. And I said, oh, can we just ask him to lay down? And he said, yes, I could do that and happily stayed down. So they had all these misconceived notions and no one said, hey, what? It doesn't, it, it doesn't look like he wants to hurt us. What? What is he trying to communicate? So that willingness to hear what the other truly has to say especially when it doesn't uh, jive with our labels. That's, I think, one of the most common mistakes. And I see that from pet owners right down to, to dog trainers. We get stuck in our our labels and our jargon, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, especially that you, you being a breeder of German Shepherds and – Obviously, like uh, you know, some some of those training approaches with German Shepherds. It's it's well, you got a German Shepherd. You know, you know that means you've got to. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, they so. need that. They need that. It's like I, I just don't know of any animals. Like yeah, hit me harder because I'm gonna really like that. Um, just no. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> you know, or you can never you can never do this because of that. Uh, it's just, I don't know where these notions come from, but they're very widespread. And they are. And professionals are as guilty of spreading it as, uh, yeah. as just your average dog owner. Yeah. Yeah. And so it makes me sad because a great German shepherd is a, is a really fine, fine dog. It's not for everybody because they're way too smart and they have too many ideas. Um, <clears throat> but mm -hmm. you've got, and, and big mouths to boot. So, um, but yeah, we, we come with all these biases, whether that's about breed or, you know, the, the myth, you can't really train a puppy till they're six months old. Well, that's, that's from the old days where they physically <laughs> couldn't stand yeah. having half of their neck removed with a choke chain. <laughs> it was too um, harsh to do that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like their brains are working. I don't know how to tell you this, but um, yeah, so mm -hmm. those, those myths get in our way and and they get in our way in all relationships if we're not looking to see what's really true for that other. So that's why, you know, everything I do, I say, is, is under that huge umbrella of relationship. So that's how yeah, I sort so, things out. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's perfect because I want to talk to you about your relationship-centered uh, training approach. Uh, so, you know, you spoke to that already. Can you sum up what, what that means to you? So relationship-centered means that 
at this at literally at the center at the core of everything I do with an animal um, and I try with people I'm, I'm not as good as, as I am with animals is is what I'm going to do affect the relationship and if so in what way and if it's detrimental then my answer is going to be is it then is it medically necessary is this an emergency you know when our cockatoo had one of her one of his toes bit off on Christmas Eve um it's like I don't have a choice little guy I'm really sorry normally I give you choice and you can step up but this you have to go now I'm going to forcibly take you out of your cage and, and put you in a carrier um if it's not medically necessary then I have to back up and say this this has the risk the risk not the guarantee but the risk of banging up this relationship so on the one hand we have how healthy and strong is this relationship it's like you know in our most intimate relationships we can we can lose our minds and chances are good the person may forgive us especially if we can say i'm really sorry and i understand that was not cool for you and i won't do that again you don't get a lot of explanations with animals they believe that what you do is what you mean and it is it is authentic the same way their behavior is authentic you know no no dog mother ever said wait till your father gets home um just <laughs> nope if she's got a problem with the puppy she's like hey little jerk don't do that again also don't no do not bite my lip that hard <laughs> like right now the truth is in the now for for animals um and so that's that's where they tell us things are good or not good so that that whole relationship is always central literally to everything i do yeah, I actually kind of feel like the the word training. I feel like we needed a, a different word for this because mm -hmm. I think training people have in mind you you train tricks, you train behaviors, and and the animal is supposed to perform them. You know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people when you command them to, um, rather than just doing cues. Uh, mm -hmm. But like, I feel like you can it's easy to find people to, who can train dogs to do tricks you know like even the average owner could mm -hmm. who who may not have any kind of formal knowledge of what what you know the science behind training can teach some pretty impressive tricks but i think i really think it's much harder to find a trainer who can really understand what you're talking about which is understand the relationships and true communication between two different species like that um, so I'd like to ask you, you know, you've, you've obviously worked with a ton of people, a lot of professionals in your life. Uh, what, what sets apart like good trainers in your mind? Um, and why are, you know, so many trainers just like missing the boat on, on this, that, it, it, that they're, they're so focused on the results, um, and making a dog do something for them, um, rather than the relationship so that that is a really outstanding question so we have a couple of problems one is that you know there's the cycle of competence right so we start out with we're not we're not any good at it and let me back up just a little further step it's all tricks to the dog right we're the ones that say this is a trick and this is you know serious like a downstairs serious dog's like you know to the dog it's just it's like don't eat the bone i just put on your nose he's like all right um, they're all tricks to the dog. And as I say, if I ask you to meet Timmy, he's the president of his, his chess club and he's going to be class valedictorian and he speaks three languages. And he also likes works with the elderly in his community. He's an Eagle scout. That has nothing to do with his relationship with his parents. Nothing that is stuff that he, he does. <clears throat> so when we mistake the stuff or the specific behaviors that get taught, for a relationship we make a very big mistake which is why there's people that have great relationships with animals they didn't teach them anything formally it's like he stays with me because he likes me and i like him so we go places together <laughs> it's like <laughs> crazy crazy concept versus yeah, right. he stays with me because i feed him cheese every two steps you know so allison gopnik have you um have you seen her book it's it's, it's about parenting it's called oh, the no. carpenter and the gardener Mm -hmm. And I really okay. like this analogy because a carpenter expects results. And you, you just said, you know, that, that it's, it's results oriented. So yeah. 
people that have that mindset or are young enough trainers to believe that that is the whole ball of wax, they think as long as you apply this recipe in this way with these ingredients, the following outcome will happen. And so it depends on your tools, right? You could be a baby carpenter and you're going to get balls of wood and a, and a kid saw and you don't really have a hammer. So you're just going to use a rock. You're probably not going to get the same results as an experienced carpenter using, you know, some beautiful mahogany, you know, and all the finest tools and all the experience that goes into using them. But there's still that expectation. If I, if I measure this correctly, if I cut this correctly, if I do this this many times and there's this many pieces or whatever, I will have a fixed outcome. A gardener is completely different. A gardener understands that even with their best efforts, there are so many elements out of our control. The soil, the temperature, what happens to that seed? Did a chipmunk disturb it when you weren't looking? You know, uh, the weather, it's just, this is a terrible weather, by the way. The summer was god awful to be gardening. Um, the zucchini are happy. Yeah. The zucchini are always happy. I don't know where they would not thrive, but maybe Antarctica. Um, <laughs> but the gardener understands that even if they do everything right, there's many other factors that are outside of their control. So their job is to understand what those influences are, understand how to protect or nurture the plants, even though that's happening, and to also understand that there are times there's nothing you can do. It, it simply is what it is. These are live, living, growing beings. So I, I ask trainers, are you, a, are you a carpenter or a gardener? And as soon as you say, well, I use that you know, recipe, fill in the blank for I don't know, counter conditioning. And I say, well, how long have you been doing that? And they're like, six months. I'm like, then you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong because mm-hmm. something's not right there. This should not take six months. It says that you're just applying a recipe over and over again that's not actually shifting behavior. Um, and then I have what I call the rule of three, too. You know, if, you, if you're driving to Memphis and you see a sign that says Montreal 500 miles, and you're like, okay, and you keep going that way. And then the second sign says Montreal, 250 miles. You're like, yes, sir, Bob, I am on my way to Memphis. It's like, for all the non-Americans listening, <laughs> Montreal's way north in Canada. <laughs> north. And Memphis is south and, and in the middle of the, the U.S., kind of. Uh, nowhere near each other. You can't be surprised if you've ignored the road signs when you end up in Montreal. And yet we do this with animals. The, the dog says, like, that's actually not what's happening here. And this isn't working. And we just keep going. It's like, ah, oh, and we, re- we apply the same recipe, right? So it, mm-hmm. the, the trainers that grow up to be the trainers that I admire and recommend and really love mentoring are the ones who are like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Why? Why didn't that work? What don't I know that... And they're the ones that go to seminars. They're the ones that are listening to webinars. They're the ones that are reading books. And they're like, well, that's not the answer. But okay, now I know I don't want to do that. I'm not going to pop a shock collar on a dog, even if someone says this works. Um, So they keep looking for answers. And of course, the more questions you have, it's turtles all the way down, man. (laughs) (laughs) The universe is balanced on that turtle. Well, what's Mm -hmm. under the turtle? Turtle. And what's under the turtle? Yeah, it's turtles all the way down. So more questions lead to deeper understanding, but that also in turn leads to more understanding. And I say that the moment I became a far more skillful trainer is when it hit me so hard how little I actually knew. Because you go through that conscious competence, right? You're unconsciously incompetent, you're bad at it, and you don't even know it. Yes, yes. That would would be me, me and ice skating (laughs) or roller skating. It's like, oh. (laughs) That looks easy. I would enjoy that also. Oh my God, no, it's not working. And then you get consciously competent if you stick with it. It's like playing the piano. It's like if I really concentrate and practice, I can be okay at it. And then you become consciously um, competent where you can do it without thinking, unconsciously competent uh, rather. And so you can do it without thinking much. And then the next step is mastery where you can then teach it. So you're not good at it. You're good at it. You're aware that you're not good at it. You're you're good at it if you pay attention and huh, you don't have to pay as much attention. It's how we all learn to drive cars, right? If we were all still in that unconscious, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh Lord, those first two stages, there would just be 
it just massacres on the highway every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it does take a certain humility. It's always some animal who smacks your ass and says, you think you're a trainer? Well, guess what? All those recipes in your little cookbook, yeah, they don't work with me. For me, it was a one of the big moments was a Tibetan Mastiff. So, you know, basic mm-hmm. obedience class. And I'm telling them, let's, you know, be motivational. Let's be fun. Let's make it entertaining for the dog. And for the most part, 99% of the dogs are like, oh, look, this is cool. We're marching around to music. We're having fun. People are laughing and breathing. This Tibetan Mastiff just stood there. Was, he sh- he could have been like the host of a BBC show. He just like, have you no dignity? You know, what is, have you no dignity at all? I said, oh, you just have to be motivational. Could I, could I work with him? I'll show you. And the woman just laughed and she said, sure. And she hands me the leash and I put on this amazing floor show. And the dog does not move so much as a toe. He just raises his eyebrow. And I swear he had a really posh British accent. How <laughs> undignified. <laughs> I am not, I'm not motivated by you. I'm, I'm actually finding you quite vulgar, um, you know, but thanks for the floor show. And I remember thinking, well, that's supposed to work, you know, when you're active and motivating and you're, you know, as much fun as a squirrel, let's go. And dog's like, yeah, no, you've mistaken me for someone else. That does not float my boat. In fact, I'm rather annoyed by it. I was like, well, why? Yeah. So that was a big smack upside the head. It's like, huh. How would you work with this dog? Because then the next question became, all right, my bad. My, I apologize. What does interest you? What is exciting to you? And the answer was not much. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong. It's like, all right. So what? So then it's like maybe, maybe my list of things that I think you should know, Mr. Tibetan Mastiff, are not actually all that what actually is important, right? And the answer right. was he needed to walk nicely on a loose leash, stop and stand quietly when she stopped, not just keep plowing ahead. In other words, stay connected to his person, um, wait at doorways, you know, sit and, and wait for his meals. Past that, there actually his lifestyle did not require a whole lot of anything. He allowed himself to be handled. He, he was good at the vets and all that. He could be groomed. He wasn't vicious in any way. And uh, I thought, huh. So imagine a dog who doesn't know how to heal getting through life without that. What a crazy concept. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I have zero need to, to be a precise obedience healing beast. I, no, I'm already walking at a nice, easy pace with my human. What's your problem? It's like, well, that 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 messes everything up in my head. Now I got to rethink <laughs> Yeah, yes. Why am I even asking? And I, I kept finding arguments, and you probably know this, right? So mm-hmm. in your career, you're like, why is everyone struggling with this? In my case, it was the stand for exam, because basic obedience you taught to the AKC novice routine, right? And it's like stand for exam. And all these clients, would they would, they would do the homework, but they were struggling. This is actually a, a hard exercise for a, a novice dog you know, first time obedience class. And I thought, well, why in God's green earth does any dog have to stand still and his owner owner move away so a stranger can walk away, you know, walk over and poke him? Like, I wouldn't leave my dog on a standstay for (laughs) anyone to do that to except in the stupid obedience ring. I was like, huh, so how about we go with real life? Can you just help your dog stand, stay with him? Just put your, you know, hand in his flank two fingers in the collar and just ask him to wait with you so that can examine him or someone can check something. And all the, all the, you know, struggle that my students had evaporated. It's like, it's not the students. It's not the dogs. It's the request. Well, that changes everything. So those, the trainers I admire most are the ones who think outside the box and, and above all, they really listen to what the animal has to say. Mm, yeah i love that they have they have yeah they have lots of recipes in their cookbook for sure but they also know that it's not about recipes it's about how do i make sense to this animal so that this animal says all right i I see Mm -hmm. what you're saying Mm -hmm." 
I really like that analogy of the the carpenter and the gardener. That's really great, and um, and uh, Isn't it? what you're, yep. yeah, it is. And and what you're talking about <laughs> trainers with egos. I know, like when there's a trainer with an ego, I'm staying the heck away from that person because <laughs> that person's going to yep. get somebody hurt or they're going to hurt themselves uh, sooner or later. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, but getting back to the um, relationship questions, or, you know, we didn't go away from it. We've been talking a lot more about it. Um, but I think one thing that's, uh, it's hard to discuss relationships without also discussing social hierarchies. Uh, and mm-hmm. so there is obviously, as we all know, right, there is that belief, that training philosophy that is very focused on absolute control over the dog, that if you're too lenient on a dog that they'll walk all over you and they'll never respect you or that you know even some of them that you touched on it earlier that they need to be treated roughly to respect you so what do you Mm -hmm. what do you tell folks when they when they are just overly concerned with social status in their relationship with their dog that really they they start limiting you know just simple things that dogs do like you know oh I tell you when you're allowed to sniff, you don't sniff until I let you sniff. You know, things like that. Yeah, so this one is a a pretty loaded question because it actually goes back to cultural, you know, uh, it's woven through us culturally and philosophically and even religiously that, you know, spare the, the rod and spoil the child. And many people were raised this way. And, and they're like, well, that's how I was raised. Um, and that turned so out to be fine. So, you know, why can't we do through, it? Yeah, and, and I'm fine. I'm in therapy, but I'm fine. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, and I was raised that way, so I, I do get it. And there's a part of me that could say, oh, a couple of times when I took a, you know, a, a slap to the face, I actually provoked it on purpose. But that's just being a stupid teenager. Um, and so... What I have learned from the best animals is that, and it, it just makes dogs trainers crazy when I say this, quote, hierarchy of status exists. It exists all the time. You know, if you're a parent, you, you have more influence over a child than the child has over you. But by the same token, when you're speeding to get that child to soccer practice, when the cop pulls you over, yeah, well, that so- social status dynamic changes big time. You're like, hello, officer. Um, and so guess who's got the higher status? So status only comes into play where there is a disagreement in goals or there's limited resources. Past that, you could you could have, you know, before she died, you could have lunch with the Queen of England. And if she said, sure, you know, that, that's cool for me. And you're like, it's cool for me. It's cool. There is no argument. And the, the very best animals I've watched having raised herds of um, you know, worked with herds of horses and worked with stallions and, and our, we have right now, I think there's five bulls out in the pasture. The best of them leads with, without any aggression. They, they get their job done by just beautiful clarity, by patience, by tolerance. Um, they, they don't beat the snot out of each other. One of our, our most wonderful bulls. I mean, Jim just, he just was, and he would, it was like, you know, great moms when they look at the kid and it's just the look and that's all that needs to be said. That was Jim. He's like, so that's, that's where I'm going to be eating at the feed bunker. And it was like the parting of the Red Sea. I never saw him get after anybody. It was just, um, this amazing clarity. So it's a, it's a weird concept. It's like people, when they tell me, you know, my dog weighs 70 pounds and he pulls so hard and I ask, well, how much does your dry cleaner weigh? And they're like, what? I'm like, is he a big guy, little guy, you know, small woman, big woman? Like my dry cleaner? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Aren't you worried when you bring your blouses and skirts in that in some way he, you're going to have to probably dominate him, but he's awfully big. And they're like, no, I just ask him. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a, there you go. There's the crazy concept. So if there's agreement, there is no need for hierarchy. It is only when there are a disagreement of perspectives um, and intentions and or resources are involved. I always say in in the live seminars, if you doubt this, we're going to lock you in here like a bad Twilight Zone episode. And there's only going to be one donut 
one access to the toilet, (laughs) one (laughs) cup of coffee left. So then we'll find out about status and, and social status and the hierarchy. And they're like, oh, you would get it, of course. I'm like, I don't want it. Now it's up to the rest of you to fight over it. And they're like, oh, well, I don't like donuts anyway. I'm like, we'll see how hungry you get. But in the <laughs> real world with real dogs who live in a resource-rich environment called our homes, and as a rule, they, they have a lot of choices, it, it makes no sense to the dogs. They must think we're psychotic because we're, we're running around huffing and puffing and acting like dominant dogs. And then they act like we would if a psychotic broke in and, you know, started winging around us. We, um, they comply because you would. You're like, this guy's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. I, mm, don't aggravate her. I don't think she's normal, right? Which is, which is <laughs> what any sane social animal does with someone who's acting in a threatening, dangerous, um, provocation, small reaction, huge kind of way. You're like, whoa, you placate them. You're like, oh, you no, know, no problem. I, I will sit here and put my head under a paper bag. Is that what you want, Mr. Bankrover? Uh, we're good with that. And so the dog's like, see, it works. Dogs are like, you know why it works? Because <laughs> you're scary. Or the this the old setup was, if you move from the sit state, I will hurt you more than you can believe. So you might not be comfortable there, but the alternative is I'll give you something to cry about. And it's so woven into a lot of, of a lot of civilization that we don't even recognize it that it's our right to do this to an animal. Um, and that the more tender hearted or more sensitive souls are like, that cannot be right. Have for decades been told you're a bleeding heart. You're too soft. You'll never, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's hard. And it's now with social media, it's everywhere. It's quick results. And yeah. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. A lot. It goes bad fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you about uh, your um, your new tool, the functional assessment tracking. The acronym is FAT. Fat. Um, mm-hmm. So, can you tell a little bit more about what it is and and how it can be used? Sure. So, Fat is a, an offshoot of my. Uh, you know, I, I ran kennels, I ran barns, and, and in doing that, you you become intimately familiar with each individual. So if there's a horse who had his, his head in the back far corner, you know, in the middle of the day, wouldn't even raise a flag. Cause that's what, that's what Jeffy always does. However, if I go down and marshmallow is doing that same thing, I'm like, I, why are you doing that? That is not normal for you. So understanding each animal as an individual is, is part of good management and training. Um, and as a, as a bar manager, kennel manager, a lot of physiological concerns are there. And so FAT is an app I developed to help people not to see the dog as here's this behavior, but like the dog I just described who, who got out of the car and, and physically already says, I'm compromised. I can't do what other functionally normal dogs can do. I can't sit. I have fusions in my spine. I have... And he did. It turned out he had god-awful hips and knees. Um, So this dog was in chronic pain and still hadn't really hurt anybody, which was amazing. Um, So the the functional assessment app is kind of a a glimpse at how, when I'm looking at a dog, I want to know about the whole dog. So just behavior alone isn't particularly useful. Um, You know, how does he eat? Well, he eats okay. I, I don't know what that means. Does it mean... He's a really eager eater. He's he eats slowly. You have to beg him to eat. He eats every three days. You know, certain foods may seem gassy. It, a familiar thing is people on a show circuit, right? If I don't bring back tidbits from my meal, I have to bring that special food when we're on the road. Well, that says he's stressed. That says a normal function of of eating. That normal eating behavior, which is is for life and limb, is is out of whack here. So this, this assessment looks at physiological, cognitive, and social functioning. And it's really asking one of my elemental questions, how is this for you? Meaning in this moment, how are you doing dog? So I might, you know, call you next week for it and say, say, how you doing? And you're like, oh my God, I got that new flu. 
I, I just want to be dead. Can I call you back? I, I have to go lay down again. So functionally, that would be a different answer than you're doing great today or you have a headache today or whatever. So for the physiological, what track, uh, fat does is it takes you through a questionnaire and we look at eating, drinking, urination, defecation, sleep and rest, mobility and pain so that we get this, this sense is a very strong visual graphic, which says green, everything's okay. Maybe there's a few little quirks you might want to, you know, adapt to make the animal perfectly happy. Yellow says we have some concerns and some changes need to be made to support this or fix this. Um, and the red says we have a serious problem. This, this animal's mm -hmm. functioning in this area is, is severely impacted. And even with help, this may be problematic. Uh, cognitively, we look at work, uh, we look at learning, we look at play, and we look at work. And, and by work, we mean doing things that are that are known to the dog, you know, the skills that he has. And then socially, we're looking at how does the dog interact with familiar people, unfamiliar people, the absence of preferred persons, unfamiliar dogs, and familiar dogs. So all that gets turned into this beautiful little graphic that at a glance, say, you know, you're going to do a behavior consult. You have the client fill this out. You have your take, you have your intake now for a lot of serious information about how this dog's functioning right now. Um, and you have your talking points. It's like Mrs. Smith. I see that, you know, this dog only scored a, a six on, on sleeping. When you click on the results, you'll see what their answers were that created that score. And you're like, so I mm -hmm. see that he's really disturbed. Like once he's awoken in the middle of the night by your neighbor slamming their car door, he really struggles to get back to bed. So now as a trainer, you're thinking, I have a dog with who's not great with other people. He's noise sensitive. And when he sleeps disturbed, he can't regulate that. His, his resilience isn't great. I'm mm -hmm. going to have different advice for that dog than, oh, no, he would sleep through a tornado. Um, so fat is the overall thing. So from a behavior or medical point of view, you can also see, is this working? Mm -hmm. You know, is, is this training plan? Are we getting changes in behavior? Is this medication helping that new food helping? We've rearranged his sleeping. We've added a white noise machine. We've made sure he gets enough sleep. We've added this supplement to help with joint pain, whatever. It's like, can we actually track the progress? Are we headed in the right direction um, in a way that helps people understand that what may be typical for their dog may not equal normal, healthy functioning. It sounds like a really promising tool that can be very, very useful. Uh, so the physiological, the cognitive and social, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you go through those three layers like one at a time or all at once? You can do any of the above, right? So if I was just, let's say, as having a dog in for boarding, I may not do anything with the, the cognitive stuff, but I may do something with um, the fact, how's he going to interact with unfamiliar people? And he's been left, so absence of preferred person. And then physiologically, how's he doing under this stress of being boarded with us? Um, if, I'm a, if I'm a trainer, uh, I can go and just work with other aspects that I want to work with. But I think you, you can do all or, or some, but it's absolutely, at some point, you're going to set a baseline. And, and for intake, mm -hmm. this is hard for trainers, right? Is to remember to ask all these questions. The owner can spend 15, 20 minutes doing this assessment. You call it up in your portal and it's like, all right, now let's discuss what's going on with Fluffy. But it helps you understand other aspects that sometimes we forget to ask about. You know, many trainers don't even think about sleep. Does this dog get enough yeah. sleep or how does he behave um, with sleep or understanding how many ways the dog can say, I'm struggling here, or I, I was doing okay, and now I'm not. It's like, why? Why, why, why? Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, so this can be used uh, not just at intake, but throughout the entire course of the interventions sure. that you're working on yep. with with the client and dog. That's great. So that, that gives you the ability to track your progress. 
Yep, and you can and, call it. We have multiple ways to compare. So you uh-huh. can you can say there's a there's a side by side bar graph. So you can call that up and compare a whole lot and say, ah, look at that. You know, we we did treat that urinary infection, for example, and so we were in the red. This dog was completely incontinent. You know. Um, really struggling to hold her urine day or night, soiling herself. And now we've got her on those meds, got her on the antibiotics. And now it's like, and now we've moved this dog back into the green. She is continent. Um, yep. So it allows you to compare where you've been. And for those who see dogs um, intermittently as boarding kennels or daycares might, or pet sitters or dog walkers, it just lets you have a check on, is is everything still okay because of course one year in a dog's life is huge like a lot of changes could go down that would be like you not seeing a friend for seven years it's like how how are you doing it's like when i last Mm -hmm. saw you you were running marathons you're like well when i took that tumble on my mountain bike i broke both (laughs) my ankles and you know then an airplane landed on my house and you're like, oh, well, that would explain the wheelchair and the, um, you know, <laughs> you're, you're not doing marathons anymore. It's like, no. So seven years, a lot can happen. Um, but being able to track baseline. Uh, one of my friends, she found out one of the precursors for seizures in her dog was that the night before he'd go off his food. She was tracking this really closely with fat. And she's like, everything's good. The eating pattern was the first tip off that he was already feeling some distress. And then the next day, if there were big stressors in the household or an event, um, yep, he was likely to have a seizure. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I could see this could be a great tool for shelters to use as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, is this dog in- going downhill? You know, is this, this dog struggling, decompensating? Yeah. Do we need to get this dog into a foster home ASAP? or move them to a quieter area of the shelter. Um, And and how well is this dog doing in the new home too? It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, all right. He's more functional in this new home. We've gotten rid of some of those stressors, but also knowing where the the areas of concern are. So again, everybody's got talking points. So you've got this graph, but you also have a detailed narrative report that can be emailed, you know, printed out, put on the cage if you want. So everybody okay. has the same information, which is, is the hard part, right? As a trainer, we try to ask as many questions as we can, but you can then get to the point of absurdity where the client's like, really? You wanted to know, like, you know, what happens after he stops eating because the, you know, the bird disrupted him. It's like, I do, because that will actually tell me a good deal about how sensitive he is to, to environmental input and then how he recovers or resolves it. And that is no small thing when you're, especially with the kind of work you do, Ferdy, where you're dealing with behavior cases that are complex. It's like, what's, what's yeah, it work certainly. here? Yep. What are all the, the contributing factors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now you, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned uh, resilience uh, a little earlier. Um, so I, I'd really love to, you know, I, I do work in a shelter and um, I think, I think actually trying to build resilience in shelter dogs is such an important part of what I'm doing. I'd love to hear what, how you build resilience in dogs. I'd love to hear your approach and what you pay attention to, what's important to you to build resilience. So I, I think the thing that needs to be always said in any discussion about resilience is that first and foremost, resilience is a temperament trait. Mm-hmm. It comes it comes down to the neurobiochemical genetic template that that animal landed with. And just like some people are more behaviorally fragile than others, um, you read like Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, how is it, and he was a concentration camp survivor, how is it that these people had the same horrific experience, but they were okay. They went on, they survived, and some went on to thrive. Others had the same experience and it destroyed them. So this um, borrowing from child psychology is your dog a dandelion or an orchid, right? So dandelions mm-hmm. adapt amazingly. No one's ever said, gosh, it's such a, such a bad, cold, you know, wet, dry summer. I hope the yeah. dandelions make it. Nobody says that. Um, <laughs> but orchids, the environment has to be perfect 
or they're going to be distressed and they're going to fail to thrive. So we start with that. The, the dandelions are, are by nature more resilient. The orchids are the ones who really need our help because they struggle to resolve the stressors in their life. The dandelions, sometimes you don't even realize they're resolving it. It can happen so fast. They're like, oh, all right, so this is now and this is where we are. Okay, these are the dogs that can walk out of a shelter after three years. Like, well, that wasn't the most fun chunk of my life, but they just sail <laughs> on. They're like, Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's over. Thank God. Um, and they're the ones that come back and, and, you know, read the, they lead the fundraising parade. And yeah, so everyone yeah. sees those dogs and says, Oh, well, I'm going to get me a shelter dog and I'm going to love him. And then he'll be able to lead the pet parades. Like not necessarily. So from my way of thinking, I think of resilience first as an innate uh, capacity Okay. On top of that early puppy development is how we actually teach that little body, mind, and, and soul to respond to the stressors in life. So even the best genetics still need the actual input of a good early puppyhood. And by early puppyhood, I mean prior to seven or eight weeks, not after you've gotten them. And then we polish that up with what we add after the fact. And then I'm looking at coping skills. So say you're terrified of tarantulas, right? So I'm not going to, not going to necessarily make you behaviorally robust, but if I teach you coping skills and so what was a trigger no longer becomes a trigger. I think that's what many people these days mean by building resilience. We're actually giving the dog skills that he says, oh, well, I know about tarantulas now. They're not that scary. I know how to deal with them. So he looks very different from the dog a previous year is that tarantula ah, runs screaming for the hills. So coping skills. So this dog feels safe. He feels competent within himself. Um, he learns how to self-modulate his arousal, right? Only the dog mm -hmm. can reach in and, and dial his arousal up or down as trainers. We can only promote situations where the dog can experience that and say, oh, you mean just stand here quietly? Huh? Well, there's a crazy concept. <laughs> no one ever told me that maybe I could do that. Um, and I, I love that animals, if you give them a more comfortable way of being, if they can, they choose it. Mm -hmm. They choose it. Yes. And they do it sometimes so fast. So building their resilience so they feel safe, competent, um, safe is huge, but that they have the coping skills they need. This is what I do when this happens that helps me feel safe and connected and competent. Can you give me an example of that? Like how you might teach a dog a coping skill? Um, let's say yeah. a dog that's uh, sensitive to noise and you're in a noisy kennel. Uh... I don't, I think noise is really hard and I may just mm -hmm. have a, a weird bias because I am very noise sensitive. I have better hearing, I think at times than my dogs. I have to give the warning boof if I think I hear something coming up the farm driveway. Then all oh. seven shepherds, then all seven shepherds get on duty. But uh, sometimes I wonder how safe I am at night. It's pretty funny. Um, so I think I think noise, like some sensory input, has a hard wiring in it that yeah. you can't change. That like you okay. could have you could have bought me a pony every time someone popped a balloon you still would not have successfully made me happy about balloons popping. Even at my age, if a balloon artist comes over to a restaurant, I'm like, go away from me or I will be forced to kill you. Like without popping your balloons in some fashion. Um, but a more typical way is let's say they see a, a stranger coming, right? So we're going okay. down the trail and here comes a stranger and the dog's like, ah, where did you come from? And you came around the corner and I didn't know you were there. And dogs freaking out, not happy about, you know, meeting strangers. So for me, it's like, all right, I'm going to teach you when this trigger appears in your world, this is the thing to do, which in our case, we use Mayday. And Mayday means get to my left side, wherever you are, get your butt to my left side. I'm going to step out of a head on um, orientation. We're going to step off the path, go perpendicular. That is taught outside of the triggers till the dog's like, I love this game. Say Mayday again, and I can pay you. So when the dog mm -hmm. sees the trigger and it's controlled and we use someone the dog likes um, and it's a perfectly controlled setup, the dog's like, oh, so when I see a person, mayday, I know what to do. Got that. Get to the left side. 
And all the body language that we've done is such a huge meta message. We've taken ourselves out of confrontational head on, head on and said like, we're not interacting with this person. We're over here and the dog, the owner can say, I've got your back here. We mm-hmm. are not going to have to deal with that person. And then we teach an auto check-in, check-in with me, pal. I will always look to see what's bugging you. And then I will take action to keep us safe. And so that is like such a huge relief for these dogs. They're like, oh, okay, I don't care if someone's coming down the path. That's fine with me because it's going to be Mayday. And off we go. It's also really hard to say Mayday like with any great distress. I guess if your boat's sinking, you you probably would. But say, in dog uh-huh. training, it's got a, it's got a nice upbeat tone. Mayday, and the dog's like, yay, I know how to do this. So that's a, a very specific coping yeah. skill. What we do when we meet someone coming down the path. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, do you also have what what would you do when a dog is already let's say they're already over threshold they're already triggered um and i think a lot of people feel at a loss once the dog has uh, already lunged and they're barking and and they're making a big display a lot of people don't know what to do after that they think that okay this is um there's nothing you can do so um is there something that you do when you do see a dog that stressed like how do you help them recover after they've been triggered so now we we step back to who is that dog as an individual how behaviorally fragile or volatile are they and it varies wildly you know some dogs will do a slow burn then explode some will explode but then you walk them 20 feet away they're like well that was that and they're done with it you know so i i need to i need to know how you roll um but I, I impress upon my clients that you either have training situations or you have management situations. You don't have both. Training means the dog is in the think and learn zone so that his arousal is, is at a spot where he can absorb information. He can respond to stuff that you've taught him. He can think he can, he can take in information and turn it into new responses. And then we get to the sticky zone where their responses get to be slow or inaccurate. It, it, I always use the example that your, you know, your partner is busy watching the Toyota commercial for the billionth time, and you say, "Hey, babe, could you pass me the mustard?" And so, it registers dimly that you've asked for mustard. So they just reach over and they grab the salt and they hand it to you. It's like I don't know, she wants something, but I'm busy, and so they give you. And it's like, no, 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 the mustard, and then they hand you the honey. And the third time, you're like, the mustard. They're like, what? I no need to yell, you know, and they'll give you the mustard. So I teach people, how do you know? Is this a training moment or a management moment? Management is we are going to get this dog to safety or we're physically controlling him until we can mm-hmm. get out of this situation or the situation changes. And so that was a struggle for so many clients because if I was there coaching them, they did perfectly, but they'd go home and I'd think, but that was not a training moment. That was a get the hell out of Dodge moment. And they're yeah. like, how do I know the difference? So I kept looking and I thought, uh, you know what? He's going to warn you. This dog's going to warn you because they're going to get sticky. When they get sticky, you better change something. Either get out of there or up your ante or change something. It's about to go bad. When I gave them that, they understood they could stand in the highway median and train if the dog said, I'm in the think and learn zone. They could also be in their kitchen and realize the dog was not anywhere near the think and learn zone. And it's like, this is not a training moment. So on their own, then they could make that decision, training or management. So training, continue, go ahead and and do what you're doing. Management, get control of the dog, get everybody in the situation safe, either change the situation or get the dog out of the situation. Um, And then regroup once the dog's back in that think and learn zone. And that varies. It it could be for some dogs, a matter of seconds. You know, my puppy river, if she loses it, we took her off to a dog event the other day and she's like, ah, and I was like, Nope, we're going to step behind the the pickup truck. (laughs) Like you're not, you're not going to yell at that little dog, even though that little dog's yelling at you. She's like, okay, fine. And within five seconds, she's like, (sighs) she takes a breath. She sits, she looks at me. She's like, got it. Lays herself down, says, okay, I'm back. I'm back. I'm good. And she was, and I could walk out from the behind the truck, but I've had other dogs that I've worked with. Once they blew up, 
boy, you better go take them. You better get out of that situation and maybe rethink bringing them back into it that day. Because hours later, they were still um, thinking about it, still upset. But we know that from friends, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know that from friends. I always tell the story. My husband and I, when we met, he was a park ranger and police officer. And so he wanted to take me to the, the, the park he loved most of all the ones in his district. And so we're walking along and by many stupid choices, not ours, a firing range, cops in a firing range lost control. So we have nine millimeter bullets going across, shredding the leaves just above our head. And I was like, wow, these Illinois bumblebees are something. Um, And then my brain processed, not bumblebees, (laughs) nine millimeter rounds. He being a trained cop was already on his way to the ground. I was just a few beats behind him. So anyway, gets us all to safety. He goes down and reads them the riot act. Like, what the hell, man? And so he comes back up and, and he says, well, I guess we'll just go home now. I was like, why? He says, well, we got shot at. And, you know, you're not going to want to go for a walk in this park. I'm like, why? What, what are the odds we'll get shot at again today? He's like, seriously. I'm like, seriously. You know, let's go. And he just, he had not encountered someone with that kind of resilience. He's just like, <laughs> yeah. really? I was like, well, really, let's look at the odds. Come on, people. Seriously, take that bet to Vegas. We're probably not going to get shot at again today. At least not here. (laughs) So some animals are like that and others are like, I am never going to that park again. In fact, I'm never going walking again in the woods (laughs) because Uh you could get shot at. It's like, no, all the all the ingredients aren't there. Never mind. So, yeah, that's why I really want to know who are you? One of my elemental questions is, is who are you? How do you process the world? And then how is this for you? Is And how is it right this minute for you, dog? I'm really interested in that too. Yeah, that's uh, see the dog. That's how I think I've seen you end uh, uh, a lot of presentations with that. It's so simple, such a simple concept, but it's so important. Um, so I love that. And thank and, you for and sharing. And I think dogs you know, know when you really see yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, when you respond, right? When you respond to when they are looking for your assistance and they then they see that oh you you get them, yeah that that moment that yep. <laughs> that moment then they understand. Wow. Do you cool. see that so, that wonderful look, that look in your eyes, especially with aggression cases, when they warn you and you're like, okay, so you you just like stop what you're doing, like I heard you. And you see the dog think like you heard that like I didn't have to threaten to bite you or actually sink my teeth into you. You saw that my breathing changed and you're like I did and I'm sorry we won't do that again. Let's take it at a different speed. That look of gratitude in their eyes like you get me? You heard that? It's like I do. So you look like you're magical and you're not. You're just a good observer of dogs and you don't wish to push the dog into confrontation. So you're like my bad. Let me back up a bit. We'll start again. So, yeah, they, they know when they're heard. All of us do. All of us know when someone's really hearing us or seeing what we're trying to express or communicate. Mm, that's lovely. And I think that's a great place to uh, end and wrap up. Um, so, Suzanne, I, uh, uh, you told me that the, um, the FAT tool is um, it's new and it's not completely out yet. Right. This is uh, you we, just we just haven't done the official launch. It actually is up and running, and okay. you can go dive into a fourteen-day free trial, no credit card required. All the features will work. Um, you can you can test drive it and see if it's something that a- appeals to you for your own personal dogs, or you know, for the professionals who are like, "Whoa, that would be an amazing tool." Yes, fatfordogs.com. It's it's up and running. We're just not. We just haven't done the official launch that comes out in mid-October. Okay, fatfordogs.com. And uh, where else can people find you? You can find me at suzanneclothier.com where we've got free articles. We've got videos you can watch. Um, we've got books and DVDs and all that, all that physical stuff. And then we also run um, quite a few online courses and webinars but you'll find links to everything if you go to suzanneclothier.com, get on our newsletter and you'll you'll get all. We don't send out lots of announcements, but when we do, it's it's got stuff in there. Plus you can find me on Facebook too. 
Mm, all right. the, all the usual places. <laughs> yes, wonderful. I'll be sure to uh, make uh, put those uh, links up on the show notes. Um, and yeah, and people out there, really uh, check it out. There's a wealth of information that's out there available. And in fact, I think a lot of the um, the new stuff that uh, some of the younger trainers are coming out now is basically stuff that Suzanne's been teaching forever, and they, they've just repackaged it in a slightly different manner. That's all it looks it's, like. It's This is when you know you're old, right? You're like, huh. And you know, some of my older, some of my students have been with me for 20, 25, 30 years. They're like, you were teaching that in 1992. I'm like, I know, but yeah. they're sure they found something cool. It's like, yeah. So I, I say it's good to be a pioneer because you're lost and no one can tell the difference. But um, uh, pioneers end up with a lot of gray hair and I, their their butts are sore from bumping across no roads whatsoever on a, on a buckboard wagon going, what the hell am I doing? Um, if it was so smart, how come no one else did it? But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amusing to me sometimes. <laughs> it's like, all right, before I get into my orthopedic oatmeal, someone came up at the aggression of dogs conference and she said very proudly until this conference, I didn't even know you existed. And I said, well, that's, that's good. Cause I didn't know you existed either. So we're even, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> there we go. Touche. And off we go. And, so I'm not sure that was the best conversation to have, but it, it was entertaining. Yes. Well, uh, well, now um, we have, hopefully, there are a lot more people out there who know you exist. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot already, but uh, hopefully we'll have some, uh, newer, some newer trainers that do know you exist and they can check out what you have uh, to offer there. So thank you, Suzanne, again for your time. It's, it, was a wonderful, it was wonderful to talk to you. Um, really, just I am, uh, I, I, I will put you on my, my personal Mount Rushmore of trainers yeah. that I follow. So um, I really respect thank everything you. you've done. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. As I'm heading towards my 65th birthday, it's, it's just funny to, it, it's, it's not funny. It's actually very, very touching and moving to know that all this stuff that I put out there when everyone thought I was crazy, they're like, what are you talking about relationship? You know, this is all woo-woo stuff. When I published Bones of Dream from the Sky, they literally didn't even know what genre to put it in. There was no such thing. They were just baffled by this book. Um, but it's still in print 22 years later, 21 years later. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's just nice that, uh, yeah, it's really cool to see people talking about relationships and dogs have emotions and, and really working on partnership and cooperation, as you said not teaching them stuff, but how do we build a life together with respect and trust and love? And so, yeah, nothing makes me happier. And real pleasure talking to you, Ferdy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hey, animal lovers. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard and like to learn more, please follow us on Facebook or visit www.behaviorvets.com. We have much more cool stuff for you if you'd like to keep geeking out on companion animal behavior with the Behavior Vets team. Come back soon and join us on our journey to make life better for the animals in your life. Thanks again for listening. Remember to have hope because real change is possible and we can achieve it together. Enjoy our podcast, but this is a reminder that the contents of this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. The comments and advice are never intended to be a substitute for seeing a behavior professional or a credentialed veterinarian in person. While the content is always intended to help people receive the best possible behavior support for their pets, any information you utilize from this podcast is at your own risk.